like Ben said, my name's Nick. I know some of you guys, but not quite all. Um, so on the count of three, why don't you all say your name? Ready? One, two, three. Morning. Lovely to meet you. I've got some props. You know it's going to be a good preach if you've got props. Yeah, come on. <laughs> um, yeah Ben asked me to share uh, my story. And I think it's awesome that you're working through people's stories because God works in everyone's life uniquely. It's not like he does the same thing, exactly the same thing in everyone's lives. Everyone's got a story. Everyone is a part of his story. And our mind goes, I wasn't born in a Christian family. Like some people were born into a Christian family. I wasn't. Uh, but my parents were converted when I was three. So I was raised in a Christian family. So what happened is uh, we, we, I was born in Australia. We moved to Holland when I was three years old, you might, you just might pick up an accent. Uh, that'll be not Dutch. We'll, we'll explain where it is soon. Uh, but anyway, in Holland, uh, my, my parents were there. My mom was kind of isolated and these lovely Christian women came around her, loved her. And that's kind of what led my family uh, to Christ was the influence of, of love of this community. Anyway, then, uh, so grew up in a Christian family. We moved to Canada when I was four. And I lived there till I was eight years old. And in Canada, I was in a Christian bubble, right? My family were Christian. The school I was going to was Christian. All my friends were Christian. Pretty much most of the people on our street were Christian. The church I went to was Christian. That's always a good thing. And, uh, and that's kind of like the environment I grew up in, which was awesome. Really nurturing. I, I learned heaps. Really fell in love with Jesus. Fell in love with his word. And then we came back to Australia when I was eight. And uh, I came back to Australia, went to a public school, and went the Christian bubble, right? I, uh, I met all these non-Christians and all these people, and I learned all my swear words in one day, came home going, Mom, what does this mean? What does this mean? It's like, don't say that. And um, yeah, and, and you know, then I moved schools again, um, and uh, I was... Uh, you know, coming from that environment of this Christian bubble, I was really outgoing with my faith and loved Jesus, loved talking about him. Uh, but people around me didn't love that I loved Jesus and didn't like that I talked about him. And they started giving me quite a hard time. And in year, like kind of from years five, six, seven, I was bullied quite a lot for my faith. Uh, people would call me names. People would try to make me do things I didn't want to do. People would make me feel stupid and silly for believing in this stuff. And it made me feel really rotten. It, it was tough. I didn't like it at all. And it pushed me down into a space of, is it even worth it? Putting up with all this bullying and, 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 and you know, this isolation that I'm feeling. None of my friends were Christian. It's really worth all of that. And I'm, I'm a, a very... Um, uh, you know, analytical mind. I love understanding things and, and, you know, working through things. So kind of what I thought, well, I better figure out, is it true? Because if it's true, it's worth it. So I, I went on this journey investigating, is what the Bible has to say about Jesus true? And uh, through that journey, I, um, I was led by awesome youth leaders who answered my questions and uh, going to church, being involved with that. My parents were great. I was reading the Bible. But there was one book in particular that made a massive difference, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. And I read this book, and it's quite an easy book. And it, it just, the evidence 
for what the Bible has to say about Jesus, how reliable it is, is overwhelming. It's overwhelming how reliable the, the Bible is, what the New Testament and what the Bible has to say about Jesus. It's overwhelming how reliable it is. And so I just want to demonstrate to you just how reliable the New Testament is. And the way, the way to do that is, you know, we're going to go into some teaching mode. I'm going to teach you some history or, or not exactly history, but how do we assess historical documents? And there's two main tests. The first test is the manuscript test. And what that means is that, you know, as, as documents are created and when people write stuff down, like people wrote stuff in the New Testament and you might, there's other documents, ancient documents that were written, people would copy them and copy them and distribute them and copy them and distribute them. And the originals would be lost but we have copies and have all these different manuscripts. And the more manuscripts uh, you have of something, the more confident you can be that it, it corresponds to the original, that, that what you have is the same or very close to the original, particularly if they're similar. If, the, if you get two copies and they're completely different, that's another thing. And um, there's a lot of, there's heaps of ancient documents uh, where people and historians apply this test. And I wanted to demonstrate uh, what, what other, other ancient documents and what we, you know, and kind of society just assumes are true and reliable, uh, how the evidence they have. So one is, um, and some of these are Greek names I probably won't be able to say, uh, Herodotus. Anyone know Herodotus? That's right, I didn't either. Uh, he's got eight, eight remaining uh, manuscripts. So if you imagine one page is one copy, right? He's got... Eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I can count eight. Thank you. The next one you might know, Aristotle. Aristotle uh, wrote some really wise stuff. We have five manuscripts of him, five copies of the original. So one, two, three, four, five. Then there's uh, Caesar wrote, wrote the um, uh, Gallic War. We have 10 of him. So that's a little, little bit more. That's a bit more like a, like a little booklet, right? We have 10 of Caesar. Then there's uh, Josephus, is one of the main Jewish historians. And he's got, we have 120 copies of his work, right? And that's a bit more like this book. So we have 120 of him. Can you see how they're comparing? I'm going to need some space in a sec. Then the second most reliable document we have on earth is Homer's Iliad, which tells a story of Troy. And who do you think told me that uh, this afternoon? <laughs> right? We have, um, what is it, 400, no, sorry, 643 copies of that original document. So about, about that many. Right? Then we get to the New Testament. How many copies do you reckon we have of that document? So just, we've got that. Hang on. And uh, just give me a sec, we've got that one. So that's half of what we have. So we have, we have just about 20,000 copies of the New Testament, of fragments of the New Testament, right? The evidence that it shows, and, and they're incredibly similar, and that shows just how reliable this evidence that they use to test the reliability of historical documents, that is overwhelmingly reliable. That what we have in the New Testament 
is reliable and trustworthy as an accurate uh, story, accurate retelling of who Jesus is. So the next thing, the next test uh, that they do is called the transmission test. And for this, I'll need a volunteer. So can I have a volunteer? Yep. So I've forgotten your name already. Yeah, Mia? Awesome. Yeah, Mia. Now, who's going to do what? Can you stand? See this thing here, the, uh, the tape there? Can you stand there? So Mia is today. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. Let's not get this wrong. Mia is um, the earliest copy we have of, of a document, right? And Troy, can I have the, put it here? Now, when uh, the, the other thing about historical documents is originals were written, you know, maybe, oh gosh, this, this, this will get real dangerous. Um, <laughs> all the way back here, you know, actually, and this is where I need my, uh, yeah, well, we'll talk about that in a sec then. <laughs> all the way back here is when uh, Aristotle was written. And then 14,000 years later is the earliest copy we have. That, that's, the, that's the difference between when it was written and, when, and the earliest copy we have. And so can you imagine what it would take for that to, to transmit over all those years being copied again and again to get to Mia, to get to the earliest copy we have so that it's the same and, and reliable? So what we're going to do, now I'm really regretting this. <laughs> the other thing to mention is I grew up in Canada where we didn't have footies. And uh, so what we'll do is we'll handball. That was fantastic. All right. Yeah, come on. Let's bring it back. It's all right. You don't have to throw up. The next one on my little cheat notes here is uh, Herodotus is 13,000 years from the original to when it was written. Then there's Caesar uh, and his Gaddic Wars and Josephus. So these are very reliable. Everyone assumes what we have corresponds to the original. 1,000 years from when it was written to the copies that we have. And I'm left-handed. <laughs> Thank you. The next one is Homer's Iliad. 400 years, sorry, uh, no, 500 years from when it was written to the copy we have. Yeah, good stuff. Then we get again to the New Testament. 100 years from when it was written to what the earliest copies we have. And that's a very generous assumption. It's, it's more likely to be less, right? So can we, there you go. <laughs> Great job. Thank you, Mia. So as you can see, 
the evidence for the reliability of the document we have in the Bible, in the New Testament, is overwhelmingly reliable. And that's not even to, to mention all the other evidence we have, the stuff that's written in, in other documents like Josephus and Tacitus and all these other historians that we, we secular society just assumes are true and reliable. What they have to say about Jesus doesn't even have to mention uh, the disciples, the, these 12 people and, and a whole other range of, of uh, followers of Jesus who gave their lives to, to, in, in service of this truth that if it was a lie or if it was fabricated or if it wasn't real, it just doesn't make sense that so many people would give their lives for this person. And that's not to, not to mention as well the incredible movement that began in the first century of Christians literally transforming the world, loving people, transforming culture, taking in babies that no one wanted, uh, reforming um, sex, you know, uh, coming up with the concept of consent and, uh, and uh, creating a society that's based on love and integrity and honor. Change the world, this movement that has not stopped, that is still moving, that God is still working through. The evidence for, for what, we, what the Bible has to say about Jesus is overwhelming. And what does the Bible have to say about Jesus? What does the New Testament have to say? Well, to share that, I just want to share one verse from John uh, chapter 20, verse 31. So this is one of the guys who wrote a biography about Jesus, who wanted to pen down what happened. What did he do? What, you know, there was miracles. He healed people. He taught a whole heap of stuff. He died and he rose from the dead. And John says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You may have life in his name. I just want to say three things to wrap up. The first is to anyone who's not yet convinced. And that's okay. That's okay. But can you see that the evidence for the reliability of the Bible is quite overwhelming. So the least we could do is to check out what it says. What does it have to say? Who is this man this book talks about? Investigate the evidence. See for yourself. Like me, I, I went searching to find out for myself. And that, you know, I, I, I found really overwhelming evidence. And it wasn't the evidence that saved me. It wasn't the evidence that made me Christian. The evidence led me to the man who saved me, led me to Jesus Christ, who died for my sins, rose again, gives me new life. To those who can relate to my story of being bullied, of being made to feel stupid, being called names, being forced to do things you don't want to do and experiencing all that. You know, as, as I became convinced of the truth, it didn't stop any of that. It didn't make it better, but it gave me a greater purpose. And it connected me, like I said, to Jesus. It gives me life. And what Jesus has to offer is so much better 
than what this, what anything in the world can offer. So to those who, who feel that pressure in, 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 our, in, in school or maybe in your family or amongst your friends, who feel that pressure and are bullied or made to feel stupid or, or have that, feel that pressure to, to give it up, is it worth it? I'd say to you, it is. It's worth it. It's true. Jesus is the Son of God and He died for you and He rose again. It's true. So stick in there. Persevere. Stay at it. Keep coming to youth and, and, and being part of this awesome community where you can encourage each other and spur one another on. You know, tell each other how you're struggling and, and how, you know, what, what your experience is, life, is like. That's, that was a massive impact for me was youth, going to youth group, sharing about my experience and ask, asking those questions, working through those questions with youth leaders. It's powerful. So keep coming, keep doing that. And the last thing I want to say, I've, you know, preparing this talk and um, praying about you guys and, and praying what God might say, I've got a strong sense to say that, uh, is there someone here who would take this truth and share it with the world? Who would take this truth to tell someone, to, to actually do the research and actually look into these things to be able to convince others. Not, to, not that by convincing them you save them, but by convincing them you lead them to Jesus who would save them. Who here might take that truth to the world? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the New Testament, that it is reliable, that we can trust it. You say that your word is truth, but it's, it's, it's great to know that by historical standards, we can rely on it, that it holds up under scrutiny, that we can come with questions and doubts because we can be confident it's true. We can work through that with you. So God, we pray uh, for those who are not yet convinced, yeah, Draw them to yourself, Lord. Help them, help all of us to work through these questions and to ask and let this be an environment where questions are welcome, are invited, are celebrated. God, I pray for those who are bullied and, and, and find it really hard being Christian in their school, for those where it's hard at home, for those it's hard with friends. God, I pray special blessing on them tonight, that you would just fill them with confidence, that you would give them the gift of faith, of trust in your truth. God, help them to open up your Bible and speak to them, Lord, that they would come to Jesus, keep loving him more and growing in him, that you would work through them. And Lord, I pray for those you are raising up to share this truth, to tell this truth to the world. God, it might be in their school, it might be on their street. It might be with their friends. It might be uh, in our city. It might be overseas. God, you are raising people up. You, your desire is that everyone would know your truth. And we pray you would use us. Equip us, grow us, challenge us, and use us, Lord, to, to share your truth with the world. And we pray this not not to get notches on our belt and, and converse, but we pray that people would come into your kingdom and meet their king so that you would be glorified, you would be honored. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.